Welcome to the 377th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Kim Tallbear, author of Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free, as always, to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 16th, 2021, there are 5,108,501 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Marshall McKay. Indigenous leader who helped steer Autry Museum dies of COVID-19 at 68. This was written by Carolina A. Miranda and appeared January 2nd, 2021 in the Los Angeles Times. Marshall McKay, a Northern California indigenous leader of Pomo Winton heritage who helped secure economic independence for the Tocha Dihi Wintun nation near Sacramento and whose deep support of cultural causes led to his becoming the first indigenous chairman on the board of the Autry Museum of the American West, has died at age 68 after contracting the coronavirus. In December of 2020, McKay and his wife, Sharon Rogers McKay, tested positive for the coronavirus and were both hospitalized after experiencing severe COVID-19 symptoms. Rogers McKay recovered and was eventually released. Her husband did not. Marshall McKay died December 29th at Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center in Los Angeles. His death was confirmed by a representative for the Autry Museum and his stepson, Alex Ander. Rick West, president and chief executive at the Autry Museum, said McKay's death marks a huge loss for the museum, but also Native culture at large. McKay was West said, one of the five, maybe even three, significant Native leaders in the late 20th century and early 21st century period. He will miss his strength and wisdom, said a joint statement issued by the members of the Yochadihi Tribal Council. He was a resolute protector of Native American heritage here within our own homeland, but also throughout California and Indian country, they said. His stepson describes a congenial family man who loved road trips, Nicolas Cage movies, and his chihuahuas. At one point, he had a brood of 10, the most beloved of which he named Frida Kahlo. I know that he has done so much incredible work in his life, and I know only a small fragment of it, Anders said. I knew him as a human being. My biggest memory is road trips. We would drive around the countryside for hours and let the rock and roll do the talking. McKay, who was the first in his tribe to go to college, was involved in tribal governance for a three-decade period starting in the 1980s and helped the Yochadihi expand its land holdings in its ancestral territories in what is now Yolo County, California. He also helped the tribe 
achieve economic independence through a casino development, the Cash Creek Casino Resort, about an hour's drive west of Sacramento. Half a dozen years ago, with his involvement, the tribe expanded into agricultural production, which included the development of Sika Hills, a brand of artisanal olive oil. If economic issues were important to him as a tribal leader, so were cultural ones. The economics and the fight for sovereignty, the things I fought for all of my life, I think we've got that, he told the Sacramento Bee in 2006. Now we need to revitalize our spirituality, our culture for the young people. He was a founding member of the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation, which supported indigenous artists and culture. In 2007, he was tapped by then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger to serve on the Native American Heritage Commission. Shortly thereafter, he joined the boards of the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington and the Autry in Los Angeles. At the time, the Autry Museum had recently merged with the Southwest Museum of the American Indian, making it the steward of the second largest collection of Native American art and artifacts in the United States. In 2010, McKay became the first indigenous person to serve as chair of the Autry's Board of Trustees. McKay was a key to expanding the Autry's vision to be more inclusive of indigenous and other histories. They came on board, they had brought the Southwest collection in, and it was about telling the stories of all the people of the American West. The Autry was ready to move, Rick West said, and I think it was Marshall who led that. He led that evolution. Marshall McKay was born June 5th, 1952 in Calusa, California to Mabel McKay, a renowned Pomo teacher and basket weaver and Charlie McKay, who was of Winton heritage. Marshall studied at UC Berkeley and Sonoma State. He later served in the US Navy, helping maintain nuclear submarines. He became involved in tribal politics in 1984, serving first on the Yochadihi Tribal Council, followed by a decade-long stint as chairman. After the Federal Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was passed in 1988, he was instrumental in working with the state of California to develop the tribe's gaming operations. Beyond his own community, McKay worked tirelessly to support broader indigenous causes. He served as a member of the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change, and he was a central figure in the ongoing effort to establish a California tribal college, an initiative to educate native people from throughout the state. On the cultural front, he had long campaigned against the use of indigenous symbols as mascots in sports. Really is racism, he told NPR in 2014, and I think it's time to talk about it from the Native perspective. McKay and Rogers McKay, his wife of almost two decades, were important collectors of indigenous artifacts. It was he who acquired and preserved a logbook that was signed by thousands of activists during the indigenous occupation of Alcatraz in the early 1970s, a book that one scholar described as a holy grail of Alcatraz research and which the Autry Museum made available to the public in the fall. It's an important part of the history of the West, he said in an interview with the Times, of preserving indigenous history. The story needs to be told. In 2018, the Autry opened an exhibition that explored the work of McKay's mother, Mabel, who in, charge, in, a, who in addition to being a celebrated basket weaver, had also been an important advocate for indigenous knowledge and artifacts in California. Like her son, she too served on the Native American Heritage Commission, appointed by Governor Jerry Brown in 1976. West said the installation at the Autry included a sound piece in which McKay talked about the legacy of his mother. It was so powerful, West said, you realized from whence this man came. It was not only in his DNA, but everything around him. McKay, West said, understood something critical about culture, that cultural preservation was the preservation of the community itself.
The headline was Marshall McKay, indigenous leader who helped steer the Autry Museum dies of COVID-19 at age 68. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, one I've been looking forward to greatly. Let me introduce my guest, Kim Tallbear. Kim Tallbear is a professor in the Faculty of Native Studies, the University of Alberta, and the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience and Society. She's a citizen of the Sisseton Wapaton Oyate in South Dakota. Dr. Tallbear is the author of the book, Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. Building on her research on the role of science in settler colonialism, Tolbert also studies the roles of the overlapping ideas of sexuality and nature in colonization of indigenous peoples. She is a regular commentator in the United States, Canadian and UK media outlets on issues related to indigenous peoples, science, technology, and indigenous sexualities. She's also a regular panelist on the weekly podcast, Media Indigena. She tweets on these topics and more at Kim Tallbear. Her research websites also include www.indigenoussts.com, and you can also find her work at relab.ca. You can also follow her occasional posts on her Substack newsletter, which I recommend, and that's called Unsettled Indigenous Affairs, Cultural Politics, and Decolonization. Kim Tallbear, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Well, thanks for asking me. I'd like to start the way I usually do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Uh, I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, which is one province in from British Columbia where there's terrible, terrible storms right now and mudslides and everything. And we are having a lot of snow in Alberta. Um, this is Treaty 6 territory. Uh, and so the territories in Canada were signed kind of in numbers uh, across Canada. And COVID, let's see. So I'm in Edmonton, which is the capital of the province. And there's about a million people here. Province has got a little over 4 million. I think I read today in the last couple of days that the numbers are as low as they have been in the last few months in terms of hospitalizations and people in ICU. So um, I don't quite understand the the COVID rates, but if it's below one, it's good in terms of the transmission factor. And so we're at one or below in Alberta now. So the numbers are getting are getting better, but we've also instituted um, uh, sort of vaccine requirements in businesses, kids are in school. Um, you know, it's hard for me to have a sense of how dire it feels for people here because I'm also an American. I've been up here for six and a half years now and it's tended to be worse in the parts of the US where I am. So Alberta is known as being like the Texas of Canada, like very conservative. <laughs> and there, there are anti-vaxxers here and things like that. But I am always comparing it to places in the US that I know and it feels not, but I don't want to get in trouble by saying that either, you know. Um, it's we I don't think we've we have we ever we are, came close, but I'm not sure we ever hit quite the crisis of some of the hospitals, say, in, in Texas and places like that in the U.S. But don't. Well, you I am quoted now because I'm saying this online. <laughs> but well, yeah, but there's no no jinx implied in that. I mean, it's it's interesting how, you know, you're keeping an eye on on where you are, obviously, but also, I guess, on yeah. South Dakota, on your home there and what well, a disjuncture and, between those two places 
Yeah, and, and also I came here from the University of Texas. I have a lot of friends down there, right? Um, you know, I've, I was educated in California and Massachusetts. I've lived, traveled and worked in almost every state in the country. So I, I tend to keep track of what's going on. I know people everywhere. Yeah. And I'm always comparing right between the two countries and, and the different healthcare systems, right? We have some semblance of social, social medicine here. Uh, I was an undergraduate and a, a master's student at the University of Texas, and most of my family lives there too. So I always sort of keeping one eye on Texas and what I see, I don't like. It's, it's yeah. been really terrifying actually to watch what's been happening there. Yeah, I put, I was supposed to go see a friend down there and I'm like, you know what? I don't, I didn't have U.S. healthcare at the time. You know, I just have Alberta healthcare. I'm like, I'm not coming to Texas with no healthcare. And what if I get in a car accident anyway? Like, could I even get a hospital bed? I just, it didn't feel safe. So I didn't go. And what about on campus there? Were things remote and now you're back or they still remain remote? What's the situation? Uh, we were more conservative here um, in terms of going back. So last year, I think we were almost totally online, except for people, maybe some of the labs or, or, or clinics, right? But everything that could possibly be online was online. This year, um, they said they were going to have a big back to campus push at the University of Alberta, but many of my friends elected to teach online. They gave that option at the last minute for many, many classes. So it kind of, it depends. I think faculty by faculty, they, they might have pressured people a little bit more to go back into the classroom. But I'd say in terms of my colleagues, I'm on sabbatical right now, half are in the classroom and half are teaching remotely. But in general, I felt like in the US, the universities pushed people back into the classroom quicker. Do you have a, a memory, a strong association of this time that you might be willing to share with us? Uh, during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Well, I got COVID, <laughs> as I wrote about in my Substack. Um, you know, I'm very, uh, I like to stay home and I'm a loner. So I have no, had no trouble avoiding it. But after eight months away from my daughter, who was 18 years old and living in the United States with her dad, I used to go back and forth constantly. I hadn't seen her and I just couldn't stand it anymore. And it wasn't good for her. So I went back and we caught COVID because she works. And, um, but you know, uh, her, she, her dad and I all caught it and we all came through it. Okay. As far as we know, you know, you don't know long-term. Um, but I was really glad I was with her. Like I could not have imagined what it would have felt like to not be with her. And I was talking to a couple of other women too. And, you know, I mean, not to just say that only women are like this, but you know, I'd rather be with my kid and be really ill than have her do that alone. So that to me is probably, you know, and then coming through that and grateful that I came through it because that was pre-vaccination, right? Right. So, yeah. I'm glad you're okay now. I can only imagine what the stress of like, what that was like in the moment. Yeah, you know, I just, I don't think, I'm the kind of person who I've always, I've hardly ever gone to the hospital, but you don't know, right? Like you could think you're healthy and you still, but I just thought I'm going to, I'm going to assume I'm getting through this and I'm not, you know, and I, I came through it. Okay. I mean, my lungs still sound funny when I cough, like even if I have an allergy cough, yeah. they sound funny. So, you know, something's changed, but yeah, we were very grateful to come through it. All of us alive. <laughs> I wonder, you know, just about that. Do you, does it give you some kind of different purchase or wisdom on the overall experience that we're all going through with this pandemic, having been through it personally, having literally had the virus in your body? Do you, does it give you some unique insight, do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, I try not to be too cavalier about it, you know, because um, at the age of 52, I came through it. My co-parent at 59 came through it and our 18, 19-year-old daughter came through it. Um, 
I, I was very afraid of it before I got it. And I was very careful. Um, so I guess part of the fear for me went away and that I survived it without the vaccine. So now that I've, I'm double vaxxed and I'll get a booster soon, I don't worry for myself as I think I've written about, but I do worry about giving it to others, right? So I'm still very concerned about, I don't want to give it to somebody else, even if I might survive it okay. I don't know that it does give me more wisdom. I mean, I'm always, I've always been a risk assessment thinker. I've always thought very carefully about risk. And I knew when I went to see my daughter, I was taking a risk. I knew that that there was a very good chance I would. So I don't know, you know, I don't know if it gives me any more wisdom. I'm glad not to have the same level of fear as before I had it, but maybe that's false security. Maybe I'll in 20 years down the road, I'll get some, or 10 years down the road, who knows what'll happen, you know, to my health. So. Just want to remind everybody that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Kim Tallbear today. And Kim, I want to ask you about your uh, first book, Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise. Mm -hmm of genetic science. Everybody in STS knows this book. People who are not as familiar with science, technology, society research needs to read this book. And I, I wanted to ask you about this, uh, not only the book itself, but also how maybe you see it or think about it differently looking back through the prism of COVID. Has there been anything in this time that we've been through in the last couple of years that makes you not revise it in any way, but, but view the evidence or the questions you were asking somehow differently? Um, you know, I think I've noticed the, no, I'm not sure I would have, that it would have changed my questions. I think the, the, the history of bioethical bad acting in science, right? Uh, the way that indigenous people's bodies have been treated like natural resources, right? Biological resources, not only our land, but our bodies, our DNA and our blood, our bones are the resources upon which the nation state produced its science and helped produce its law and its governance over all of these resources. So you see that bad history, though, those are sort of bad scientific acting coming back to haunt us now, right? We do have very high rates of vaccination in native communities in the US, right? There's been a lot of mainstream news on that even. Um, and you've seen tribal health authorities, tribal governmental health authorities uh, um, engage in vaccination. Our Indian health service clinics have done that. So we've had pretty high, high rates of vaccination. Yet you still have people who, when they, when they are, when in native people are vaccine hesitant, it's, they always cite these histories as do like black people too, right? People who know the history of how the medical system has exploited their people. Um, cite that history as a reason to be distrustful of big pharma, of, you know, the kind of medical industrial complex coming in and saying, this is what you must do to be a good citizen. We've always been told, you know, you're not good citizens, you're uncivilized, you're anti-science, you're backwards. So that kind of history is not helpful right now. And so I, I feel like it's just more of kind of what I talked about in the book. Mm -hmm. The um, There's so many things about the book that are amazing methodologically. There's one thing I wanted to ask you about it. You you point to it um, early in the book when you talk about your sort of ethnographic approach. And you talk about how your approach is going to be um, to, I think that the term, I'm just going to read a couple of lines from it, if, okay. if you don't mind. You talk about um, what you refused to write in the book, um, which had almost everything to do with Native American perspectives on blood and DNA and their roles in forming contemporary Native American citizenship and identity. This is from early in the book. And you talk about the concept of refusal, which uh, frames the reader um, not only against the ethnographic grain, but also productive and supportive of indigenous self-determination. In other words, you said there's certain things that you were not going to 
talk about with Native American and indigenous people, and you were going to shift the gaze to the scientists and the experts, yeah. the so-called experts who were supposed yeah. to be. So, so you, you flipped the needle on the ethnographic, you know, what we might consider, well, this is going to be a book about Native Americans, and therefore she's going to deeply situate herself with Native American communities and ask them what they think about their mm -hmm, genetics. Mm -hmm. That's not the approach you took. Yeah. And I've been thinking about that in regards to, to the ways that COVID has been framed around Native American and indigenous communities mm. too. And, and so That's I wanted to point. ask you about that, you know, why, why you chose that approach, first of all, in the book, but then also maybe the implications for how disasters that affect Native American and indigenous people, how they're covered, how they're thought about. Yeah, those are all really good questions and remind me because I have about five things I want to say. Um, well, first of all, in, in talking about refusal, I'm obviously citing their uh, Mohawk anthropologist, Audra Simpson, and her notion of, of ethnographic refusal. But then I did also take that refusal to the degree where I said, I'm not going to study the in native understanding of genetics. There was so There's so much money in the, the feds, NIH and NSF will give you money to study public understandings of science, PUS is the acronym, right? Horrible. <laughs> and I thought, what? what who cares like we're not the problem i mean it is interesting something i'm not interested in what native people think of dna i've got colleagues working with uh native language speakers in their tribe to translate genetic terminology you know and and that's really cool and awesome but that's I thought the real problem I'm trying to deal with here is the racialization of native people, the consu consumption of these ancestry tests, the uh, settler colonial kind of science and, and public in inserting their definition of who we are, which is genetic, instead of our definition, which is cultural kinship and, and citizen, tribal citizenship. So yeah, I said, why don't I look at the people that are causing us the problems, right? That's the history of race science, that's genetic ancestry testing companies, that's human population geneticists, et cetera. So I suppose, yeah, if I was now going to write a book on COVID, I would definitely be looking at the kind of take up and fighting, um, fighting back and resistance within indigenous communities and the assertion of indigenous sovereignty, which has been really interesting in dealing with COVID. But it's always against the problem of the state, right? I mean, indigenous communities have been pretty careful in both the US and Canada. They've blockaded their roads. They've said, you're not coming into our territories. We're keeping COVID out. We want to do our own vaccination. We want to, you know, deal with this in, in a way that upholds tribal or indigenous governance and doesn't violate it. And you've had the state of South Dakota pushing back. You've had the provinces pushing back, you know, struggling to have control over indigenous territory, right? When indigenous communities were being more careful in many cases than the surrounding non-native communities about, about uh, lockdown, right? Have higher vaccination rates. So they were very concerned about having these, you know, uh, Canadian and US citizens not respecting their authority because it could kill them as it always has. So yeah, that's definitely, I feel like the conversations in indigenous communities are, yes, we need to, we need to promote vaccination, right? We need to get our elders vaccinated. We need to convince our young people to get vaccinated. We'll, we, we have some vaccine hesitancy, but we mostly have higher rates. But who's the real problem here? You know, the, the problem has been the colonial settler state. The problem has been the disruption of good relations between human and non-human relatives that brings something like COVID into being and, and, and then uh, spread it around the world. I mean, I think indigenous communities are pretty clear on, on what the problem is, and it's not us. It's not our bodies. It's not our bad genes. It's not, you know, our our lack of civilization. We, I think indigenous communities have a very structural critique, whether it's a critique of nature, the state, or the lack of social safety net, poverty, and how that helps proliferate COVID. So, um, I don't know if that's 
I think that's overlapping a lot with probably the sense of what I was trying to do in Native American DNA too. And, and so when the pandemic started in North America, were you totally prepared for the kinds of responses that um, tribal governance made? I mean, as you're pointing out, I mean, roads were blocked, and this is across the United States, roads were blocked, yeah. Na Native Health Service, um, you know, was amped up. I mean, I've talked with yeah. guests from Navajo Nation. I mean, they were, you know, they created, I mean, amazing uh, artist, Mallory Kwataki, um, created, C took CDC posters, but translated them. It took mm -hmm. the content from them and made her own posters to translate them according to the cultural yeah. values that she thought mm -hmm. were going to work in her community. All of that sort of snapped in place, um, which I think a lot of outside observers were really, really taken by mm -hmm. that because within states like Arizona, you had the Native American population taking a much stronger line against COVID mm -hmm. than the non-Native population. Yeah. You expected all of that? I mean, were you charting totally, all of that? Totally. Really? Yep. Because Native people, my mom is a planner <laughs> and she has done a lot of reservation program building and urban Native program building. And she said to me, I remember about 20 years ago, and we had some devastating floods in South Dakota and our tribe, um, dealt with the, not only did they help deal with, you know, getting elders out of that situation on the, on the res, but they went and got white elders too. Like they weren't just taking care of their own. And we saw this with the vaccination. They were taking care of other people in the community because they were not getting taken care of by the state of South Dakota. Right. So she said in a crisis, natives get organized because we're so used to living in crisis over so many generations. I think that's true, right? Like, I mean, I'm going to make a generalization here, but I feel like we we sometimes do better in crisis than we do when the waters are calm <laughs> because it's so instilled in us, right, to deal with it. I was absolutely unsurprised. Yeah. I want to just follow up with that. You, you write um, about the experience of your vaccination. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you might oh, yeah. share that experience because you were you were vaccinated uh, in a Native American vaccination center, right? Yeah. So um, in Alberta and, and in multiple provinces, they um, did uh, early access to vaccinations for Indigenous peoples. And so I, the Métis Nation of Alberta, so up here are the three official categories. We just have Native Americans and I think uh, – American Indian, Alaska Native, in, in, and then uh, Native Hawaiians are our three categories. But in Canada, it's First Nations, Métis, and Inuit as the three classes of people. And so um, the Métis Nation of Alberta had a vaccination clinic at a hotel here in Edmonton. And I have a healthcare worker friend who's a Métis, a Métis nurse. And he said, you know, they'll vaccinate you. And I said, but I'm not First Nations, Métis, or Inuit. I don't have any of those three official statuses up here. I'm a tribal citizen in the U.S., and he said, Kim, just go, they'll vaccinate you. And then I didn't want to go because I didn't want, also I stay at home, I'm privileged, you know, I don't have to be out on the front lines, but there were appointments, so I went. And it was one of the best health experiences of my life. You know, I'm not, I'm a middle-class person. I'm okay to go into the doctor and advocate for myself and deal with racism, sexism, whatever, you know, in, the heteronormativity, I can do that. But it was such a pleasure to go into Métis Nation of Alberta Vaccine Clinic and have Indigenous people uh, all around me um, sitting in the waiting area for the 15 minutes. They gave out like a Métis swag. So like, you know, lanyards with like their sash. They have these traditional sashes. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was really nice, you know, and they had a video of Métis like fiddling and jigging and the kind of cultural ambiance was so... And I can imagine if you're a person who's 
who's not a middle class person like me, who's not used to being out there and advocating among all these, you know, white doctors and nurses for your for your healthcare well being that it would have been a much more comfortable place to be. Um, yeah, so I, I, I loved the cultural scene as much as I was anxious to get vaccinated. Because of course, I'd already had COVID and I wasn't super worried. I was com more comfortable being at the back of the line. So um, yeah, thank you for sharing that that description. And it really was is beautiful to read it and maybe yeah. different from the way a lot of people describe, you know, calling around early in the pandemic, you know, early in the vaccine phase, calling around, not finding any vaccine and then racing across town to a CVS or something like mm -hmm. that. Your description is totally different. That. Yeah, no, they were very well organized. I, you know, they had people at the door making sure you were masked, handing out masks, very, very well organized. And there's this uh, vaccine fest going on, Vax Fest up here for Indigenous people too, um, where there's Indigenous doctors and healthcare workers and, and First Nations uh, health advocates that are doing this right now. And they've got this big like truck going around from reserve to reserve and community centers doing vaccines right now. And they've got Indigenous artists and musicians coming out and media people, and they're making kind of a media fest out of it and they're giving away swag and prizes i'm like what you know whatever it takes it's a community building thing as well right people love this stuff so i think i'm so impressed with the way that indigenous people are, are handling this and again when we they're also sharing their they're being generous when there's vaccines left over they vaccinate non-indigenous people in the u.s at least that's happened quite a lot so just to tie back to Native American DNA, do, do you expect or what do you think the reaction will be? And maybe it's already happening um, when the virology, epidemiology research complex wants to come into tribal lands and do post COVID research. I mean, I think this is this is part of the, you know, mm -hmm. part of understanding this pandemic has been understanding that healthcare is unequally provided in North America. That shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, although right. somehow it did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's often been reported racially. Uh, and yeah. not that that's inappropriate, but it's insufficient, right? So to mm -hmm. say that mm -hmm. African Americans or Native Americans have been disproportionate, have disproportionate infection rates, but without going that next step and explaining what that actually means historically. Yeah is journalistic malpractice as far as I'm concerned. The best journalists don't do it, but I'm afraid that's a lot of what is in circulation out there. And I feel yeah. like that opens up the floodgates for the kind of experimentation on rather than research with kind of approach. Right. And and people will be opportunistic about that. That's why I said in that Substack piece I wrote, I'm not entering the federal feeding frenzy around COVID research, right? Suddenly the grants flooded out of, you know, NSERC and SHRC and NSF, like, oh, apply for COVID funding. I'm, you know, yeah, totally. There's a feeding frenzy around it. You know, I think it's true. Like we, there are journalists who are focusing on the structural issues, right? This is a structural problem when certain communities have much higher rates of COVID. Uh, but again, there is this desire to individualize or racialize and say, well, what's wrong with that community versus what's wrong with this unequal system, right? That is producing much higher rates of COVID in some communities than others. I think, but in, in relationship to post-COVID research, I do think tribal communities, and um, I'll speak for the U.S. more because that's more of my experiences. I feel like tribal communities in the U.S. will be more open to health-related uh, research, but they will be very careful to want a lot of oversight and in, in, in control through their own tribally based research review boards over what that research looks like, right? 
Uh, they're going to want to see capacity building their own, you know, people, their own people helping do that research. What is the return to the community? Uh, an exercise of tribal governance. They're not going to want like the helicopter researchers coming in, you know, drawing blood, whatever they're going to do, and then leaving and building their own careers off that research. Now, when I started researching the Native American DNA book in the early 2000s, the landscape was pretty different than it is now. I know many, many indigenous bioscientists now, relatively speaking, many more than I did 20 years ago, who have finished their PhDs, who are setting up their own labs, who are highly trained bioethicists, who are, we have a global kind of conversation, at least in the US, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia right now around indigenous scientists taking the lead and helping kind of script that research landscape and pushing back against opportunistic researchers who are not really going to work collaboratively with indigenous communities in ways that respect governance. So I, I have more hope that post-COVID research could go better and that communities could see some benefit in it. Whereas a lot of the human population genetics research I was writing on, that was not the case. There was very little in that for a lot of indigenous communities. I want to remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Kim Tallbear today, STS scholar and the author of Native American DNA. And I want to ask you, Kim, about an article that you wrote uh, titled Caretaking Relations. And this article appeared in uh, the spring of 2019. So this is uh, just, just before the pandemic. And the full title is Caretaking Relations, Not American Dreaming. This appeared in the spring of 2019. And it's an article, so again, everybody should read this article. It, it's, a, it's the context is a Trump sort of moment uh, and the American lamentation, I guess, or celebration of the Trump moment. And you, you kind of frame it around that, uh, the addition to the masthead of the Washington Post that democracy dies in darkness, which is what a great device to, to jump into the space you want to write about in this piece. There's a lot happening here, but there's one thing in particular I wanted to pick up on. I'm just going to read a quote from it. So again, this is a, the framework here. This is pre-COVID, so just so everybody knows, but you write, uh, to lament the current moment in a way that dreams of United States redemption is to sustain the fundamental condition of U.S. existence, ongoing indigenous elimination a genocide that's simultaneously human and other than human, and that has proceeded apace in the so-called Americas for 527 years and counting. You go on to lament the Trump presidency via recourse to the dream of a better United States or a better Canada is to contribute to that elimination. Those words resonate for that moment, but they also resonate through this COVID time too, for me, because so much of the discourse particularly coming from the left in the United States, but not only, I guess, for whatever's left of the centrist Republican Party um, and Democrats has been, we've got to pull together. It's a national project that COVID is, and to frame it almost like World War II, this is a national challenge. We rise to the occasion, even the sort of Manhattan Project imagery, which I find terrifying, the mm -hmm. formation of a vaccine, we need a Manhattan Project for a vaccine, and therefore we will and of course, the implications of that for Native American populations are enormous, but 
those words get thrown out there. Um, and then we'll snap together like a nation that we know we are and democracy will be saved from from this virus. So I know you didn't write this piece in reaction to COVID, but I read it, of course, through COVID, and it really struck me in that in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, I mean, I, first, there's a couple of levels at which I could never get behind U.S. exceptionalism. And even as a child, right, I just thought, I remember thinking as a child, because I grew up in a reservation border town mostly, right? So it's all whites and natives. It was not very diverse beyond that there. And ever, most people were Christian, you know, it was it ultimately wasn't that diverse. And I remember thinking, do these white people really believe all this garbage they tell us at school? Because my mom was such a politically critical person, right? She was, a, we had alternative history, we had, you know, alternative histories at the at home, we had Vine Deloria's books, and the American Indian movement was something I grew up around. And I was a little kid when that was happening. And I thought these white people don't really believe all this whitewash history that they're teaching me in school, and the Pledge of Allegiance, they're just trying to save face. And then when I was about 16, I realized, oh my God, they believe this stuff. What? Like, uh, don't they read? Like, I just couldn't. So I never could get behind it. It just was totally false. U.S. exceptionalism. I mean, you can talk about another kind of U.S. exceptionalism, but this kind of moral foundation to the country is just not true. It's not true. I mean, the country's built on genocide, slavery, you know, this very extractive, violent forms of capitalism. I So there's that level, but then there's this other level of the U.S. being a bad citizen in the world. You know, it's a bad planetary citizen. And I don't know, you know, Canada as well, there is some discussion about, there is Canadian exceptionalism for sure, and there's a sense in which combating COVID is a, is a national project. But I think being in the U.S. in the heart of empire makes your your borders a bit like your walls higher and your borders harder, and it's easier to be myopic and not look at the rest of the world. Pretty Most other countries that, that I've traveled in, at least, people tend to know a bit more about the rest of the world. They tend to have a bit more cognizance that that we are a global planet and not the like U.S. fortress. So I just feel like it's not, we, we are all interconnected this cannot simply be a national project. And in fact, you are helping extend the length of the, vi the, the, the pandemic and the severity of it by not acting collaboratively on a global level. But um, so I guess there's, yeah, there's two ways at which this one, one was mostly, I think, looking at um, the national project, uh, you know, from a kind of national point of view and not as much of a global point of view, but, but if there's some more particular question that you think I can answer. No, that's. I, I thank you for reflecting on that, and I and I thought about it too. I mean, you use this concept of of being in good relation, and you also talk in the piece about you know. I mean, it's not. You also offer optimism and pessimism is the right binary, but it's you offer some ways of thinking about a future in this piece as well around yeah. being in good relation, making kin, and I've thought about that in 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 terms of particularly early in the pandemic the collectivity of the lockdown i think some people view that moment as a sort of harsh state action or you know whatever mm -hmm. it may be i view it slightly differently i mean i view that as a moment where we actually saw in real time billions of people around the world acting to save the life of other people whom they'll never meet mm. i thought that was an incredibly optimistic moment and and the fact that it was happening simultaneously around the world pushed back on that sort of national mm -hmm. exceptionalism because if somebody's mm -hmm. locking down in spain and in Texas and in um, Alberta or, or, you know, or in Toronto, wherever, it, mm -hmm. it's not solely a, a national act. So 
I guess I'm not I'm not trying to force you to be optimistic, but I guess I'm sort of wondering if you saw opportunity in that in that moment in that in that way. Well, you know, I um I I've cited um Alexis Shotwell's article The Virus is a Relation. Right. Um <clears throat> I don't remember which venue that was in, but it's online and and she talks very as a feminist philosopher talks very clearly about uh approaching lockdown and vaccination is caring for others, right? Um, but I also think a lot of people did it because they were terrified, you know, terrified. They didn't want to die. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not pessimistic about it, but I just think both things were going on. Right. And I think people had different reasons for doing what they did. And for some of us, as I, as I've written about, it was really easy to lock down. I don't like being around. I don't like crowds. I, I prefer to stay home, but for others, it's, it's, it's very painful right? It's painful to isolate and be alone. Some people, that's just very hard for them. So maybe those people are the ones who are being more <laughs> like, you know, I don't know, globally considerate. Some of the uh, most interesting research I've been trying to follow that's been coming out through the pandemic is around this concept of the anthropause. Uh -huh. and, uh, this what was happening, particularly in the spring of 2019, the summer of 2019, or excuse me, 2020, um, when because of the lockdowns, because of people working from home, those who had the privilege to do so, um, people were spending more time alone, let's say away from other humans, but they were spending more time with other species. They mm. were getting out more. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting to think with too, you know, in terms of a moment of possibility in this time. I hadn't heard that. So anthropause, P-A-U-S-E. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that. And that is a really great point to bring up, right? Because it's not only um, hu other humans that we need intim intimacy from, right? I mean, there are many, many kinds of intimacies. And so, yeah, that that is a great point. Um, uh, people kind of reflecting and spending more time out um, with, yeah, other kinds of non-human relatives right in the world yeah was that I, your experience I, too well i i really like staying inside but you know i did notice i paid a lot of it well i first of all i did a lot more um let me think about i stopped traveling so much obviously i wasn't flying all over the world anymore which i needed to stop doing and i'm really grateful for the opportunity to stop that and i will never go back to that again um, and then I did start actually connecting with friends over Zoom, but I also noticed like my plants, <laughs> this is really, I have like 30 plants in my little condo. They're everywhere. It's like a greenhouse in here. And they perked up. Like I'd never seen them look so beautiful. And I think it's because I was here every day, talking sure. online, wa talking to myself, playing music. Like my plants were really happy, you know, and I noticed that now. Um, or if I leave for a few days and come back, they perk up within a few hours. So yeah, I noticed that for sure. And I thought, gosh, they're kind of like my pets, but they're not pets, right? <laughs> but they're living things that like me around. Yeah, uh, I've had this, I had the same experience and, and it's part of the observation of people who are working in this anthropos space is that, and they, so they noticed, for example, in the UK, um, bird watching clubs sprung up and trail walking groups. And again, I mean, this. There's a lot of privilege that goes with this. I mean, these are people who were not on the front lines or taking the, uh, doing the sanitation work at the hospital. This, but it's still a large number of people who all of a sudden were out in nature. So they're making kin with, with people whom they hadn't met before outside of the structure of work, mm -hmm. but in the structure of being outdoors. But then they're also noticing, and there's some sort of debate around this, is it that more animals 
animals somehow took advantage of the lockdown uh -huh. and moved into cities? Probably not. Uh -huh. It's just that people hadn't noticed before that the birds were there. Yeah. Yeah. Although we did have in, I think, both British Columbia and Alberta, uh, excuse me, we had coyotes kind of coming out more and and more visible, right? And so you saw coyotes doing some dog attacks and animals kind of coming into, they were, I've, around here, they were definitely asserting themselves more, but it's not like there were more of them, I think. They were just coming out more, right? And and so I actually got some binoculars because I live right on the North Saskatchewan River that runs through the center of Edmonton. And there was wow. these coyotes. We did a media indigenous episode on this, like booking down the river, just all <laughs> assertive. I'm like, what is they're like on a mission, right? It was like th they were asserting their territory in the middle of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I hope people don't forget that that moment. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that maybe there was and for reflecting back on uh, on this uh, essay that we're that we're talking about that you wrote in 2019 caretaking relations that to frame all of this as some sort of you know discourse around exceptionalism and therefore we get past the pandemic because we pull on the things that makes America great and I hate to use that phrase um, <laughs> but to hold on to this moment that there were many other kinds of reactions and collectivities and sort of things mm -hmm. that were learned in that moment and some and use those rather than let them slip mm -hmm. away this rush back to let's get back to normal let's forget about that your coyotes running mm -hmm. down the river i just feel like and now i'm sort of a lot of the I people what i, I talk to yeah. i mean a lot of the people i talk to both indigenous people and the non-indigenous kind of lefties I hang out with, most of them are, um, although I don't consider myself left because I feel like I'm a Dakota, that's my worldview. But I, I definitely am articulate with a lot of where leftists come from, I think. So my lefty non-Indigenous friends are, um, uh, I lost, oh, you know, we're all saying normal, normal's terrible. Who who wants to go back to normal? You know, right. we obviously we want to we wanted we want to pull some of the lessons, the really important lessons about how to live better with one another out of this, right? And one of those lessons is we need a better social safety net. We need to take care, and and I think about that as taking care of each other, right? And I've written about that. I mean, we you know people need uh, most people, not everybody. Most people want a roof over their head, right? We need healthcare. We need things for people to make it not so. And and this this pandemic really brought all of that to the surface, right? The the problems of people who are inadequately housed, the the lack of healthcare, the the sort of um, decimation of our healthcare system, the squeezing of it by for profit healthcare. So yeah, I'm not. I don't like that word. I don't like normal. I don't like settler normal. Even though I'm was relatively privileged within it, but I don't. Most of my the people I care about have not been. It, it, and I think this is, you know, maybe reflecting on on the history that that you write about, and you know, the history of Native American and Indigenous peoples too. To push back a little bit on the framing that this um, disaster is like the first time there's a major health crisis, or you know, I've heard this a lot. First major health crisis in a hundred years in America, and I'm thinking yeah. headlines like that are. They're just, there's a very specific audience for that. And it's not an audience yeah. of people who have struggled to achieve just what you described, the, the creation of a health clinic that can carry out a vaccination pro project and do it in a, in a humane and effective way. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. That happens in opposition to the denial mm -hmm. of, of health care. I just feel like those perspectives have been often lost throughout this pandemic. 
Yeah, I think this is part of why I sort of really uh, ratcheted down my social media, like I deleted Facebook, especially, I got so tired of because I am around a lot of privileged people. I'm a professor, right? A lot of the non native people I know are very highly educated middle class people. And I got so tired of this kind of, I mean, yes, I do understand the panic, I understand the fear, I understand the sadness. But on the other hand, like a lot of people, there are a lot of people in this world who live in one healthcare crisis after another. You've got people around the world dealing with TB still in epidemic rates, people dealing with malaria, you know, people dealing with, uh, you know, the symptom of diarrhea from various, it kills people in large numbers just because, you know, somebody in uh, relatively privileged people in these two countries have never encountered this kind of mass death before. It's it exists in different places around the world, and I don't. But but it's but it's not something that um, people feel mobilized to deal with, right? Because it didn't affect them. Suddenly, COVID is not only happening to those poor people in those undeveloped countries. Oh, poor them! It's like happening to us. You know, our hospitals are in crisis. We've got, you know, tr morgue trucks outside our hospitals in the developed world. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah that, yeah. that flips the exceptionalism <laughs> on its head in a way that which was really, really humbling. And I guess a lot of Americans just didn't accept it. I mean, just really just looked at it and said, no, it's not real. I can't accept that. You think that's what was? Yeah, I was one. I'm wondering, like. I, I don't, it's it's interesting to me to watch the, and I, I don't want to use psychological language because I'm not trained in that, but I haven't known how to talk about the utter denial. You know, you're hearing about people denying they have COVID on their deathbed in the hospital. Sure. You know, uh, I don't know what to make of that. Well, I, I can uh, tell other you. Than I, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, well, I was just going to say, I mean, my stepfather would, and he wouldn't mind if I said this, he will argue uh, to the end of the day that the United States healthcare system is the best healthcare system in the world. And if you point out to him, exactly as you said, the morgue trucks or the COVID mm -hmm. rates, um, there's nowhere to go but to say that this is just not true. The yeah. media is just showing something that isn't true. I, I do think the inability to believe what COVID is doing speaks to, again, this um, one has to recognize that the I like your uh, your Twitter handle. What is it? U.S. of disaster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to recognize that, right? You have to recognize that it that it uh, it's it's deeply in crisis in a deep systemic way for many many more people than it has been. I think, um, and I think people to to admit that COVID is real and extensive is to to admit a failure of that state. That's the only thing I can. I can think about because I hear this in South Dakota too. You know, native people are jumping in, getting organized. We have a few of our anti-vaxxers, but mostly people have gotten really organized. But but a lot of the white people around us in South Dakota, there were news stories coming out of there. These nurses in South Dakota town saying, "I've got people dot," you know, and they didn't say they were white people, but I know they were white people because I'm in touch enough at home. Right. I don't have COVID on their deathbed. This is a hoax. Yeah. Um. I guess they have to question the whole, you know, U.S. exceptionalism too except that COVID's real at that level. Well, you have a unique vantage point on that. I mean, you know, Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, uh, intends to run for president. And as far as I can tell, the basis of her <laughs> claim for to be the most qualified candidate out of the Republican field is that her state did the, le the least amount to protect public health. Oh, I haven't kept up with that little announcement. Yeah, she. I mean, she hasn't announced yet, but she's been going. Yeah. She's in several cases. She said, um, "I didn't." She didn't like even. She thought Florida went way too far in restricting personal liberty. 
Um, and so, and so in, a, in, a, in an inversion of what might seem sensible, the more people have suffered, uh, the more she can say, I followed, uh, a, you know, I stuck with the ideology of individual rights throughout this pandemic. But yeah, you know, you know that's, that's homicide. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, I dem-exited in 2016. I'm no longer a Democrat, so I'm not going to like be tooting the Democrats' horn or saying how no, great they are. Sure. But nothing that the republic, nothing that the right wing in South Dakota does surprises me. Nothing. It is it it the 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 history of the of white culture there has been traditionally very, and it's a very red state. Other than the reservations tend to vote blue, but the state's very red. Other than that. It's a it's a historically really anti-intellectual place, really. It's I mean, you know, it's so nothing surprises me that Christy Noem does. <laughs> yeah, I noted you didn't even raise an eyebrow when I was uh, got to the, the the core of that. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not surprised that you're not surprised. Yeah, I just want to yeah. remind everybody I'm talking to Kim Tallbear on COVID calls. There's one more um, thing I wanted to get to, uh, Kim. You published in your Substack. Um, and I'll put up the link here in a second. People can find it. Five hypotheses about COVID-19. Uh, it's um, really good reading. You also read it. It's good listening. And uh, you're very good at narrating it. And But I, I wanted to ask you about it. You, you, um, there's a kind of tension in the piece in which you say, I'm, I'm not going to bring social science analysis to covid and then you kind of, but you do create sort of five categories of, you know, it almost in, not really in jest, but there's play. Your yeah. fun isn't the right word during these times, but you're having some, you're exercising uh, there a little bit, you know, the possibility of, of creating a typology of Americans in COVID. And yeah. And it's, it's like very, it's obviously, it's not real research. That's my disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not real. Maybe it's not real research, but it's really right on the money in so many ways. And I wanted to. So first, I just want to like why you why you wrote this piece, and then I'm going to just we'll, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to mention the five different types, and maybe you can okay. just sort of tell us why you came up why um, you came up with these. Why did you write this piece? Well, all these thoughts were floating around in my head since the pandemic started. I mean, I am an anthropologist as well of everyday life, the way that I get through this absurd settler colonial existence. I mean, really, the way I get through it is by is by removing myself and being an anthropologist of it all. I'm an anthropologist of white people. That's what I am. And I thought, okay, and and their state, right? And their and their their system of values and their system of beliefs. And I was feeling the I'm also so getting to an age where I really don't like to be angry. It's very unpleasant to me. Um, it will drive my blood pressure up. I won't, I just don't, I have to be careful. Um, and I also, the older I get, the more I just want to laugh at the absurdity of everything. But I'm not laughing like, I, I, I try to laugh and mock those in power, not those that are disempowered. But I realize that my laughter sometimes comes up to an edge, right, where it could be seen maybe as disrespectful. And so I wanted to write this piece, and it actually took me two and a half months to write this. I worked on it on and off for two and a half months. Um, I, I was feeling the need to laugh at the absurdity of it all, but I was like, I can't just tweet that, you know, that I, I will be taken the wrong way. I will be taken as crass or not caring just because I survived COVID. Ha ha ha. What's wrong? I didn't want to be like that. So that's kind of why I wrote it. I really wanted to put a, um, a more substantive analysis out there, but one that was also written out of that place of, um, you know, just laughing at the absurdity of the whole system. Uh, and then also, 
that's my culture too. I mean, I do come out of a culture where, um, you know, native people laugh a lot. And, and I think a lot of people who have been through really difficult, challenging genocidal moments in history, say you develop a macabre sense of humor. Right. And I, and that's a bit of what I have. So I brought my macabre native sense of humor to bear on my COVID-19 piece. That's kind of why I wrote it. I had to, I don't know, make a productive I, statement in the world from that position. <laughs> I, appreciated the and macabre is right and i really appreciated that part of it because i do feel like uh if we lose that capacity to find what's in some we were just talking about christy gnome i mean to point out things that almost seem like farce that almost seem like you know you've seen this on twitter a lot of people will say fire the writers it's too absurd mm -hmm. fire the writers it's like mm -hmm. have we really reached a point you know and and yes we reached that point again and again but to keep that at that edge that capacity to sh say something is just absurd is also a form of coping with yeah. this. Yeah. So, so I found it really helpful. And um, let's go through the typology a little bit. You've got okay. conservative, conservative privileged risk denialists. Uh, who are they? <laughs> the concern? Well, I, I realized I ended up focusing on, and I don't know if conservative was the right word. Maybe there's some libertarians in there, right? But they're, these tend to be mostly white people. And, and the, the tweet that I have is from this, apparently the richest area of Tennessee, Franklin, Tennessee. And you have this, you know, parent, these parents who are all buff and well-dressed, a lot of them, and clearly wealthy, yelling at the healthcare workers who are trying to enforce, you know, talk about masking in schools, uh, just harassing them and swearing at them. I'm like, wow, you people probably live in all these McMansions in this town, and you probably have three cars and Land Rovers in your driveways, and you're screaming profanities at healthcare workers, right? So just in complete denial of risk, and this kind of very individualistic. Well, if we're just fit and we're you know good, good enough, rich enough, maybe we can get away from this. And I think I say that. I mean, they're so used to buying their way out of risk. It's kind of not. They're kind of like deer in the headlights about the fact that you're really. You can buy your way out of some COVID risk, but ultimately you can't totally buy your way out of that risk, particularly if you're an anti-masker and you're an anti-vaxxer. So that's that's that group. Um, I think I call them Brads and Karens. Yeah. And, and they're in the and, top five or five percent. <laughs> and they have they're all over the news because yeah. also even if they're a small percentage of the population, it makes good video when they're mm -hmm. screaming at the school board um, yeah. or when they're chasing doctors into the parking lot, doctors who take it probably come directly from the ICU to the school board meeting to tell them how to make the school safe. And they I chase them to the cars that. and tell them, we're gonna follow you home. We know where you where you live. That's that's ready for media consumption, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I can't imagine, you'd like that article that uh, Ed Young wrote th this morning in the Atlantic on healthcare, I just can't imagine. Yeah. Okay. So that's the first category. Okay. So, okay. Then we have the liberal privileged <laughs> outraged at risk, the LPORs, liberal privileged outraged at risk. Who are they? These are most of my non-Indigenous friends. <laughs> so this is why I got off Facebook. Just people who like me are like, be, you know, we're being careful. I don't want to get this thing. I don't want my kids to get this thing. I'm going to stay home. But also like screaming at people on social media, wear your effing mask. What's wrong with you? You know, just screaming all the time. And I'm thinking, who are you screaming at? Because I don't like, I don't know a lot of people like who are the CPRDs, right? But maybe they have, because I don't know a lot of natives like that. Maybe these 
liberal privileged white people who are outraged at risk do have these anti-vaxxer kind of Trumper, you know, maybe they have those and that's who they're screaming at. But yeah, that's, that's who this was. And people who aren't used to being at risk, uh, who are used to being in a sense, being able to buy their way out of risk, they don't, but they're not denying it like the other ones, right? They're very afraid. They're they're because they're like, oh my God, this is the first time in my life I have faced something that could kill me like this, that, besides cancer, like something that mm -hmm. I can't buy my way out of, even with good healthcare. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. You you think outrage at risk is the is the wrong reaction, or it's more that you're making an ethnographic assessment here that these are people who have just not, oh, what you just said, that their risk profile has been what that they've seen be totally in control of the risks they want to take in their life. And somehow now this one comes knocking on their door. How do sort of thinking of them anthropologically, how do you, how do you come at that? Um, I like, no, I don't think it's, well, I don't know. Should they, their outrage is a particular flavor that speaks of I their see. their privilege, right? I feel like in indigenous communities, I don't know, like the outrage is not new and the outrage is punctuated because it's been multi multiple, gen, multiple generations through this kind of settler genocide or attempted genocide of indigenous people. So that there are outrages to sustain it over multiple generations. You have to develop a macabre sense of humor <clears throat> you sometimes put it aside and have moments of joy anyway. You get organized in crisis. So for me, the indigenous response is a different, it's not been just this unpunctuated, explosive, shock, shocked kind of outrage. I think these people were just so shocked. It's hard for me to have a lot of patience for that. Like how privileged are you that you're shocked at this? So we put them next to the non-privileged risk fatigued. That's another, yeah. that's the next group. <laughs> Who are they? Yeah. And I have family members like this. So, um, and I was looking at some of the numbers. Well, we do tend to have pretty high vaccination rates of, of uh, middle-aged and older people among indigenous people in Canada. Uh, the, the vaccination rates around, among younger non-indigenous people are lower, although they're still higher than the vaccination rates among non-indigenous young people. Um, but the, the people I know that are, that are non-privileged risk fatigued in my family are younger people. Um, and I've got a multiracial family. So, uh, they are, I just think there's so much that they're up against on a daily basis. And I write about this in there, you know, when you're a poor person, you may not have healthcare for anything. You don't go to the dentist. You know, you may go only in an emergency, you know, you won't catch a cancer early. There's a, you, you may not have money to pay for your rent. You know, there's a lot of things that can kill you. These, these really high rates of diabetes that go, that don't get sufficiently treated, you know, heart disease, blood pressure, all of that. It's like one more thing, right? And also people that have to work, you know, they just, when I, if I, if this pandemic had happened when I was 21, I would have had to work. I, I didn't have enough money to eat the last two days of the month, right? I either would have had to work and expose myself to, to COVID, or I would have had to go back to the reservation and sleep on somebody's couch if they would let me. And that's the other thing, right? You know, it's not as easy to couch, couch surf now, you know, when you're a poor person, people don't want you in their house. So yeah, it's, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the non-privileged risk fatigued. I really do. And I don't think just screaming at them to wear an effing mask, acting like they're just being selfish. I don't think that's the whole story. I don't know. I, 
but I do work at I do work at those young relatives and saying, look, you really got to get vaxxed because I'm not going to let you come over for Christmas, <laughs> you know. Right. And 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 is that the and and how do those conversations go ultimately? I mean, these you know people have risk fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean that they're risk denialists. It it means that think you need to give thing. them a place to rest. I mean, a person who's fatigued needs some <laughs> somewhere to lie down, as you're saying. They need some, and right. that comes with information too, right? Information yeah. can also be a form of resting if it's provided yeah. in a, in a way that's supportive. I think for indigenous and and maybe for black people as well and other people of color, I do think we need safe healthcare places to go that feel culturally safe and appropriate. Uh, we run in, you know, we run into such racism in the medical care system, really such stigmatization of our bodies, right? The, the, the insinuation that it's all our fault when we're sick, there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our culture and our community. And I, you know, so I do, this is why this Vax Fest happening in Canada is really important, right? I do think, um, and the, the, the younger people in my family who have been more vaccine hesitant are not living in an indigenous community right? They can't just go to the tribal clinic. They're not going to a vax fest. So I do think those kinds of places where people can go and get uh, healthcare that feels comfortable and appropriate um, are, are really critical as well as information. Um, so, so we have stealth vaccinators. Oh who yeah. Are, who are they? <laughs> I think there's people secretly getting vaccinated, right? I think, I think um, you're right. Yeah, and and that's fascinating to me, really fascinating. So that's just a little short part of this this place. And and why are they doing that? Suddenly, did they get threatened with being fired or laid off work? Uh, are they? Do they have, you know, maybe a, a spouse who's all anti-vax, but they're not quite sure and they're worried about their children? So yeah, that's my fourth yeah, I, category. I, I, there's a tinge of the threat of violence around that one, and with the abortion politics in the United States, I can't help mm -hmm. think there's also some sort of spiritual connection across those two categories. Yeah. Uh, in Missouri, you may have seen they tried to create some vaccination clinics that were literally totally anonymous, so people could kind of walk in through the back door, be vaccinated, and then <gasps> oh um, yeah, right? it's like a. Uh, a, a way of thinking because they literally, as you said, the implication is there's spousal or some other family abuse. That's right. Possible. I wonder how many of them are women or, or young people, right. Whose parents or, or patriarchal husbands are, are being, yeah, violently anti-vax. Oh, that's really interesting. So the fifth category yeah. here, part of your five hypotheses about COVID-19 is the relational risk assessors. And you, I think you loop yourself into this category to the extent you want to belong to a category during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a friend told me I needed to do this one. They said, you're just going to do the negative ones. I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't want to be like, oh, and here's the good one. And that's the one I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the relational risk assessors, I think, are people who are um, – maybe not as outraged and really more thinking on this global kind of relational level. And it's not only indigenous people, right? Because I cite this non-indigenous feminist philosopher, Alexa Shotwell, and, and the, her essay, The Virus is a Relation, and, and thinking about, and just quoting from her, she says, whether people live or die when they get sick depends on webs of social relations, the history of oppression carried in their bodies, what care is made available for them to receive, and so much yet that we don't understand. So uh, also thinking about the, our bad ecological relations, right? Not only our bad relations with one another, which are undergirded by, by capitalism and by racism and by settler colonialism, uh, 
but that also those things also undergird our bad relations with non-human relatives which have helped proliferate something you know the and we have more pandemics coming i mean we've known this is the case because of the way we treat our non-human relatives right and the way we treat each other as humans yeah so i think it's it's kind of it's that sort of um and then linking, thinking about our own suffering in relationship to the suffering and well-being of others. So it's not, I don't think this relational risk assessment thing is a national project, right? This is not US or Canadian exceptionalism. I think this is about being a better global citizen. I don't know if there's anything else that came out of that category for you, but. Well, I, I, I felt like as I read it, I was like, this is the category I aspire to, to be in to, yeah. to a certain degree, you know, that, and also to think about risk as a historical production and, and to always push back on the idea. And I feel like we're all sort of in this daily, you know, deluge of data, data visualization and statistics, which we feel like particularly people in STS, mm -hmm. we want to be attentive to it because we want to yeah. know it, but we also want to know how it's formed. Yeah. But it's also not, it's hard not to get sucked into that and feel like the daily risk profile is where you should be spending most of your time when i when i i'm just talking about myself here but i feel like the production of those risks and the maintenance of them over time is what we need to be attentive to yeah right um the other thing i tie in there too is um because i'm a non-monogamous right i'm an, i'm a purposeful open non-monogamous and i tie in the sort of safe safer sex practices of non-monogamous mm -hmm. into this you know non-monogamous are you there's no zero risk <laughs> there of a right. sexually transmitted there's no zero risk right and i and i i've also really come to realize in in COVID as well i think i was already on this path why do we even have a special, I mean, there's a need to have a special category of a sexually transmitted infection, but really the transmission of infection, what we need to be paying attention to is routes of transmission. And that's doesn't, ha it's not fundamentally about sex. It's fundamentally about, is it transmissible through air? Does it require right. exchange of bodily fluids? Right. And, and non-monogamous open uh, and ethical non-monogamous are very attentive to managing risk, always with the idea there's no zero risk. Mm -hmm. And that includes regular testing. That includes open conversation with with partners and potential sexual partners about your about your practices. But we can extrapolate that to COVID. We're not only talking about safer sex practices. We're talking about our other forms of social contact. What are those practices? And having a, a conversation. What has changed for you? Well, this you know I've now made the decision. I'm going to. Uh, enlarge my bubble. And then I need to let everybody in my bubble know because one of my people in my bubble might say, that's not comfortable for me. So I'm going to get out of your bubble, right? I think we we have these really good sustainable practices in non-monogamy communities for for doing that. And I and I say in this, I think if we had not ethical non-monogamous running our, running our policy around COVID, we would have better COVID practices because we're attuned to managing risk with the idea you never completely eliminate it. <laughs> so we're we're almost up on thank you for that and it's another really important and very interesting part of the piece and uh we're i've been really greedy with your time i'm sorry i've kept you so long but i've really enjoyed the conversation that i just wanted as we close out there was something you you alluded to it already but it's a part of this essay in which you say why not outrage or why not rage and you kind of it's a moment of your own kind of self exploration and kind of confession in the piece in which you say um, rage maybe is rational, but it's not where you are. Yeah. And that sort of stopped me short because I felt a lot of rage in this time. Mm -hmm. I wonder yeah, why not I just, rage. 
uh, because I'm not absolutely unsurprised by the way that this has happened. You know, um, I'm on, I'm on, I figured it would be a two to three year project. If you look at the history of pandemics, the people that thought this was going to be over in a couple of months, I'm like, use Google. I mean, come on, you yeah. know, and I'm absolutely unsurprised with the response of, of short-sighted politicians and policymakers and these, you know, higher, the kinds of hierarchies of life we have in our society. Right. Uh, I'm just not surprised. I, I don't have the energy to be out, outraged. Maybe it's because I spent my first 30 years being outraged as a, as a Dakota woman. I just don't have the energy for that anymore. But I'm not saying that outrage can spur people to action. I think it depends on where you are in your life. So I'm not totally critical of it at all if it spurs people to action. But at some point, uh, you're going to run out of steam for that and you're going to have to move into another emotional space, right? Which is hopefully still really productive in terms of the response to this. I just want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find Kim Tallbear's um, work at her website, uh, kimtallbear.com, if I'm right about that. Uh, and also, is that right, Kim? Is that the Well, that's my old website, so the okay. better one is, is indigenoussts.com, but the Indig other one links, yeah. Okay, indigenoussts.com, and you can check out her uh, amazing writings, which we've been talking about here uh, on her Substack, kimtallbear.substack.com. Please be sure to do that. And um, I just want to thank you for your time, Kim. I was really looking forward to this conversation, and, and I appreciate it that you took time to, to talk about it. And thanks for the work oh, that you do. Thank you. Thanks for um, – I'm very loquacious. <laughs> so. Me too. It's a good match. <laughs> okay. So, I appreciated it. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.